Well, good morning. My name is Larry Malden. I am our young adults pastor, and I'm so thankful to be able to open up God's word with you all this morning. You know, during a long week, I'm always so thankful um, just to be able to have an opportunity to spend it with my children, even though Thanksgiving did look a little different in our home, as Pastor was talking about. It was different for all of us this year. There is some things in our home that just don't change. And a few of those things is just interacting with our children. For one, I know that anytime we're going to be home for any elongated period of time, I know that my daughter is going to break out the slime. And while I'm not a fan of slime, I love my daughter. And so there are times where I will sit down and and fumble through that sticky goo that I just can't get off of myself or anything else for that matter. But what I love more than anything is in that moment when I sit down with her, she's going to pour her heart out to me. She's just going to talk to me and tell me about her day because she comes by that earnestly. She does not have a problem talking. So she is going to spill herself out to me. My son, however, his love language is remarkably different. His love language is physical touch, but it is more abusive touch. He just wants to wrestle. He wants to attack me any and every moment that boy gets. From the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed, literally the moment we go to bed, it makes my wife so excited. We are wrestling in some capacity. It doesn't matter where we are. If we're at Sam's, if we're at Target, grocery shopping, it doesn't matter. I have to be on guard. I have to be ready because that young man wants to come up and he is going to punch me. And I'm just so thankful that now he's hitting me north of the bladder because for the longest I was terrified of my son and where he was going to hit me. So I just, I did core just to withstand my son and he's now six. So that's sad. But in the same manner that I have to be aware of him coming up against me and attacking me, we have an adversary. We have an enemy that we all need to be aware of who is attacking us each and every single day. And that is today's message. No, with a lowercase and not an intimate no, but a know your enemy. In other words, know how he is going to attack us because he is coming. He comes after us each and every single day. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, do not be ignorant to the schemes of the evil one. In other words, we need to know how he's coming against us. Ephesians 4.27 says that we are not to give the devil a foothold. So in other words, areas of our life where we have exposed ourselves to him and become susceptible to him, we need to close those, those areas of our lives. And 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And that is his ultimate goal. He wants to devour you. And if he can't devour you and your soul, if he can't have you for all of eternity with him, then he'll at least try to discourage and devour your peace and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants to do. And so he is seeking to devour And so the way he comes at this, it's very tried and true. It's very similar. There's a pattern in how he comes after us, and it's throughout the the scriptures, and it'll be in the text we're going to be in today. In Genesis 3, we're going to look at 1 through 7 and just look at how he comes against us. And so we need to be aware of how he's going to attack us. And then the final part is, how can we better resist him? Because 1 Peter 5, 9 goes on to say, resist him firm in the faith. So let's just read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 in its entirety, and then we'll break this thing apart. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat 
We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so what we have here is we have Adam and Eve in the garden. And up until this point, they were together and they were enjoying the abundance that God had given them in the garden. They were enjoying walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, the conversations with God. They were hearing from his voice directly. Everything was good. In fact, it was very good. It was perfect and nothing had disrupted that. And then all of a sudden, We flip the pages over and immediately we see that there is a disruption in the garden and we are introduced to Satan. We are introduced to him and we know as we've read throughout the scriptures that he is capable of possession. In this particular case, he has possessed a snake. We've seen him uh, go into a herd of swine and run right off a ledge. And so here we have uh, the serpent, the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so What I want to do is just kind of give us a little bit of information about him. And not in an unhealthy manner, not a fixation as some people would fixate on evil and on Satan and cults, but in a manner of what do the scriptures have to say about who he is so that we can better defend ourselves against him. And so we get a lot of our information from Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, kind of loosely. We get some from the gospels and what Jesus has to say, and we get some from Job, and we get a little bit from the book of Revelation. And all this comes together to say that Satan was a created being. He was an angel of the Lord, and he was a cheer of the most high rank. And so he's up there worshiping in heaven and leading uh, other angels in that aspect of worship. And then one day he rebels against God himself and his pride gets the better of him and he wants to take the place of God because he wants that aspect of worship. It wasn't much of a fight. God cast him from heaven And he fell to the earth where God placed him and gave him an area of dominion to a degree, his dominion of darkness, he's the prince of darkness, and he reigns over this earth in the fleshly form for a little while in the spiritual realms. And so he is amongst this world around us. And so we know this here, but here's the fact of the matter is Satan, even though he wants to to steal the worship of God, And even though he is spiritual, and even though he has some power, we'll get to that, the fact is, is he is a created being. There is no dualism. Dualism doesn't exist. Dualism says that there are equal and opposing forces, good and evil. Scripture says, in the beginning, God. That's it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning, God created. Satan is a created being. There is no dualism. There is no equal force here. Satan has power, but he is not all powerful. That is reserved for God alone. Satan is wise. He is cunning, but he is not all knowing. He's not omniscient. That is for God and God alone. Satan 
through his demonic forces, seems to be present, but he's not omnipresent everywhere like God is, who is everywhere. God of the universe who holds the world in the span of his hand and who created everything is the king of kings, Lord of lords, and he reigns supreme. Satan does not. God and God alone is supreme. God and God alone is sovereign. And so we must make sure that these two are in their proper places, not only for our message, but in our lives, that the one who is above all and over all holds all. That is God himself. And then there's Satan. And why this is allowed to happen, why Satan is allowed to exist and why he's allowed to do it, that'll kind of be a mystery to us. But even if to test our faith so that our faith can per, uh, persevere and produce a godliness for the glory of God, even if that's it, then we've got to trust God's plan because it will be accomplished. And ultimately, we are given the end picture. So we know that Jesus disarmed Satan at the cross through the shedding of his blood, through his death, burial, and resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of God. We know that he disarmed the power of Satan. And ultimately, we know that complete victory upon Jesus' second coming will be accomplished because Revelation 20 10 tells us that ultimately Satan and all of his followers will be cast to the lake of fire that is hell for all of eternity, an eternal consequence for violating an eternal God. So we get this picture. We know how it begins. We know how it ends, but we are caught in the middle. We are in this life in the middle. And so what we have to understand is, okay, this is what Satan does. This is how he's going to attack us. He's got a little bit of power. He's got a little bit of freedom to kind of roam the earth and to come after us. And so this is what he does. And so here is how he attacks us. The first thing he does to us is cause us to doubt God's intention. Look at the very first thing he does. In verse uh, 1, he says, And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He just immediately comes against the word of God. And remember, the word of God is inerrant. It is God-breathed. It is infallible. And so we have his written word. Adam had the spoken word to him. And in that, in Genesis 2, it was, you can eat from any tree, just don't eat from the tree of good knowledge. And so the, the simple answer is, yes, he said that we cannot eat from a certain tree. But Satan comes against it, and he just takes the whole thing negative, and he says, did God really? say. And so that's the first thing that he wants to do is come up against God's intentions, against his word, against his credibility, his integrity, his reliability, his character. And he wants to come against God. And then he wants to very subtly, but very effectively place doubt in our minds and in our hearts. Because once we begin to lend our ear as Eve did to doubt anything is possible, the domino effect begins to fall when doubt enters our lives. Because it goes from, did God really say, and here it was, you can't eat from the tree, to did God really say, and fill that with any command, fill that with anything. Did God really say that you're not supposed to do this? Did God really say you should act like this? Did God really say that he loves you, that he cares for you? that he is intimately involved in your life? Did God really say that you should function in your marriage like this, that you should keep it above reproach? Did God really say a godly husband should act like, a godly wife should act like, a godly child should act like? Did God really say? 
And if it can get us doubting those things, then we can fall prey to the worldly solutions or what the enemy would like us to pursue. Did God really say? It's dangerous. And one of the most dangerous things he does is just come against the existence of God himself. Does God really exist? Because the moment that he can do that to somebody and get people doubting the existence of God, you see, in this moment, he didn't have to do that with Adam and Eve. They had already spoken to God. They had already walked with him in the cool of the day. But for other people who haven't experienced him yet and struggle with what that experience even looks like, he begins to plant that seed of doubt. And it's, did God, does God even exist? And if he can take away the fabric of that faith, everything begins to crumble because then he can go to the fact that you're not fearfully and wonderfully made intimately by a perfect creator and a perfect designer who put you here for a specific purpose with his giftings for his glory. Your identity begins to crumble without God being your creator. Your purpose begins to to become about you instead of him. And so this very subtle, did God really say, is very effective. And the moment we lend our ear to this doubt, did God really, we're in trouble. And so it takes us to the next place when we see where he takes us from this aspect of doubting God's attention, uh, intentions, he takes us to dismissing God's provisions. That's the next progression is, okay, I want you to doubt who God is, and then I want you to dismiss everything he's done. If there is inkling where you still have a little bit of faith, I want you to just dismiss what he has done and focus on the here and now. And that's what he does. Verse two, it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, there's a reason why all throughout the scriptures, God constantly reminds his people who he is and what he's done. It will say, remember the Lord your God. Moses would say it a lot to the Israelites. Remember the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt, who miraculously delivered you, who helped you miraculously cross the Red Sea, who provided food for you whenever it wasn't there. When you woke up, it was there. When you went to bed, it was there. Who provided Uh, light in the evening who provided coolness in the daytime. Remember the Lord, your God, who, and just fill in what he has done. In this instance, if you think about the commands, we always say the first command was uh, not to eat this one fruit, the fruit of the tree of good and knowledge, the, the tree of good knowledge, right? Don't eat that fruit. But really the first command was you can have anything else, eat everything else. There's an aspect of God's abundant life, even in this moment where we see him providing abundant, you can eat from anything else. It's all here. It's all available. God has created it and he's placed you here to enjoy. That's what he's done with Adam and Eve in this moment. That's what he's done for us. But what the enemy will have us do is dismiss what God has done for us. That we no longer look at what he's done and we fixate on what we don't have. The enemy is remarkable in this because what he does is he somehow uses this tactic to make us believe that God, who is all good, who only good can flow from, that this God is somehow withholding something from us to deprive us from something that we're meant to enjoy, like he somehow wants to strip us of happiness and joy 
And that is not the case at all. He has given us everything. They had everything else available to them. And we have that today. We have all these things. When we look around and we marvel at what we have, we have our families around us. We have homes. We have cars. We have jobs. We, we can look around at what we have and be thankful for what we have. But the enemy will like us to fixate on that one thing we don't have or that one imperfection or that one mess up. And he'll have us fixate on that. And if he can get us focused on that, we're in trouble. We're in trouble in that moment because in that moment we become our own God because we begin to pursue our own desires. This is where pride and entitlement well up and we start thinking things like, well, I deserve better. I deserve that. Why would God who says he loves me keep that from me, withhold that from me? Why would God not heal in this instance? Why would God not provide? Why would God not? And we start looking at these things instead of trusting God's plan, we become, and this is where the enemy was very subtle, and he says, he knows you'll become like him. You'll be like God. You see, we are meant to be like God from the aspect as a Christian through the sanctification process, we are meant to become like Christ and we're meant to walk according to his ways for his glory. We're meant to live our lives surrendered to him. That's the process. We're meant to be more and more like Christ, less and less like ourselves. And it was very subtle because in this moment, even Satan used that to say, you'll be like God. But what Satan really meant was equality. There's this idea of equality. You be like God. You be a God like him. And that's when we start to deceive ourselves like we have some semblance of control that we don't have. And then all of a sudden, we start to become our own Lord. Listen, Satan doesn't care the name that you give, Lord, the name that you give to Lord in your life as long as it's not the name of Jesus Christ. He is behind every false religion, every cult, everything that does not worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior, the Messiah who came to take away our sins. He doesn't care what name you give it as long as it's not the name of Jesus. So if you even become your own God, he's very content and happy about that because it robs God of his glory. And it's going to rob you of your joy and what it's meant to walk in his ways. And if he can take you down this road... You start doubting who God is. You doubt his word, his character. You begin to dismiss the provisions, the thing that he has done for you, the way that he has shown himself mighty to you, where he's been there. If you begin to do those things, then the next practical step is then you disobey his directions. You begin to disobey the very word of God. It's a natural progression. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of his fruit and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. <clears throat> they immediately go to this aspect of disobedience. They gave their ear to the enemy for too long. And they began to distort the word of God. They began to alter it and to change it. This is a dangerous thing. We must know God's word for ourselves. If you look in here, there's something subtle that takes place because there was something that happened in the midst of this. And you can see what's happening is this disobedience really started because at first, if you know in Genesis 2, the command that was given is that you can eat from any other tree just don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will certainly die. 
and it was just eat it. But somewhere, whether it was Adam passing this down, because Adam was given the command before Eve was created. And so Adam was given this command, whether he miscommunicated this and he thought that he would help God out by saying, don't, not only don't eat the fruit, but don't even touch it, or whether or not Eve added upon it, somewhere, somebody, humanity added to the commands of God, this is dangerous. This is Pharisaic. Jesus came up against the Pharisees for this routinely, for adding to the traditions and the elders' ways, adding that almost above the very word of God. So somewhere it was added. And think about this. This is where this disobedience comes into play because the enemy has already got them and they're enticed. That's what James 1 says to us. James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You see, they were enticed. And then all of a sudden they, they violated something in their mind of a command, but really it was a man-made command when they touched it. And they added upon that. And when they touched it, guess what? Nothing happened. Nothing happened in that moment. They touch it, nothing happens. So what's the next practical step? Take a bite. Now they ate from the fruit. There was no immediate consequence. So in their mind, they believe maybe there's not a real consequence. And we live like that every day whenever we do something and all of a sudden God in his mercy doesn't immediately judge us and we think, well, maybe it wasn't wrong after all. Maybe God's word had it wrong. Maybe the preacher had it wrong. Somebody must have had it wrong because nothing happened. And we walk down this road and it's a dangerous road because it'll take us further and further and further away from God. In this moment, they touched it, they ate it, and then their eyes were open. You see, there's this passage here that talks about it was good for obtaining wisdom And I don't think there was anything magical about this fruit that gave them immediate wisdom. I think that wisdom was immediately when they ate it, they recognized their shame and their guilt and their separation from a holy God. And now that perfect relationship they once had was now fractured. And that's the wisdom they were given is there is a holy God and I am not worthy to be in his presence. And so they ran and hid in shame and covered uh, leaves to, to hide themselves from their guilt. But this is how the enemy works. And if you can see it, it's, it's very subtle, but it's very crafty in the way he builds this thing up. And, and, and so he gets them panicking until he gets them to, to violate the very commands of God and to come outside of those commands. There's a, an illustration I like to use for teaching God's word. I like to use it for budgeting and finances. I'm a geek. I love that stuff. But I love using this for the word of God specifically because... We, we see um, in this moment that what happened when they broke outside, thinking they had freedom, the enemy entices us with a freedom when really it's enslaving, and so they break outside of the boundaries of God. When we were overseas, there were some uh, friends of ours, and they were sharing this story with us, and I'll never forget it, and they were just kind of sharing about uh, the Maasai warriors that they had worked with who had really become cattlemen over time and ranchers. And what they did is they took care of their cattle, but um, instead of barbed wire, they built thatch. And they took this thatch wire, and it was this thatch, and it was these thorns that were about this long. They thatched them together, and if you've seen the crown of thorns, like a picture of that that is placed on Jesus' head, that is the thatch that is used to make these barbed wire. And when you see this stuff in the thorns, You're broken and humbled to the fact that anybody would take that and put that upon our Lord and Savior and upon his head. But these things are serious. These things are for real. So what they do is they put these things together and they create a a perimeter all the way around the cattle. And as long as the cattle stay within there, they're safe. 
And they're not protecting them from coyotes, they're protecting them from lions. And what the lions have learned to do is they've learned to just come up against that boundary, come up against that fence. They know they can't cross through there because it'll tear them to shreds. So what they do is they come up against it and they just start walking up and down. They'll start running up and down the fence line. They'll start pounding on the ground. They'll start making noise and they'll begin to roar. And all the while, what they're doing is they're causing the cattle to all of a sudden begin to panic, to begin to feel like they're not secure, like they're not safe. And then what they'll eventually do once they get worked up enough is what? They'll stampede right on through that thatch. They'll break through that safe barrier, and now they're vulnerable. Now they're exposed, and now the lions have them. And that's what the enemy does with us. When we violate the design and desire that God has for our lives, and that is his word, this is the safe boundary that we're given to operate within to have this abundant life that he's given us. And when we say safely within here, listen, there's going to be affliction. There's going to be a persecution. The enemy will work through that, but... There's going to be these things, but when we operate through here, we can mitigate some of those things, right? And we are safer when we're walking within the ways of the Lord because we're safe in his presence. We're safe with him, and that's what matters above all else in this world. But the enemy wants us to break through it. And so what's important about this is that we must know the word of God for ourselves so that we can stay within those boundaries. Maybe Eve didn't know. Maybe Adam miscommunicated it. Maybe Eve didn't know. You've got to know the word of God for yourself. Remember it says that the word of God, it says that uh, all scripture is God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16 and that God-breathed word is good for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. Like we are meant to immerse ourselves into God's word and we're meant to feast upon this thing. Listen, you can come and you can hear a great message every Sunday. You can come every Wednesday. You can hear great messages, but you've got, those two times aren't gonna be enough. That is not feasting on the word because your adversary is coming against you daily. You've gotta be in his word daily. You've gotta know what it says. It's good to get help and interpretation, but you've gotta be in this. It was written for us to understand and for us to dig into. And so we have to know the word for ourselves so that we can operate safely within his boundaries. And then one of the last things that really stands out to me, and it really became more evident to me uh, as uh, I got married and after a, a moment, but something that stood out to me is this aspect of protecting your home, that we must protect our home. When you read this, the thing that should stand out to us is where was Adam? When you read this text, where was Adam? For husbands, this should be very convicting as leaders in our home, as the spiritual leaders. Where was Adam? And I keep repeating it because it's a very simple effort. He was right there. It even says he was right there. He was close enough that he could receive the fruit from his wife. Where was Adam while the enemy was in his wife's ear speaking lies? Where was Adam when the enemy was right there deceiving his wife, leading her to be deceived, leading her to violate the commands of God? Where was he? And then he engages and even participates. Where was Adam? This is super convicting to me. And one of the things that took place earlier in our marriage and then really began to resonate with this passage with me was this idea of awareness. 
When we were first in Uganda, we were living in our supervisor's house. They were furloughed, so we're living over there. Everything's new. Everything is different. You're trying to learn this, this new environment, and it's all foreign. Nothing makes sense. Culture shock. But we're living in this house, and this is supposed to be our place of safety security. But some of the things actually made it feel less safe and secure, like the bars on the windows. There's no central heat and air, so the windows open up, and there's bars. There's mosquito nets. There is a compound fence that goes all the way around your compound. So you got this fencing. On top of the fencing is razor wire. Then there's a security guard. And then there's also security dogs. I'm like, what are they protecting us from? I'm like, what did we get into? I'm a little nervous. Like, am I supposed to go outside and jog? I don't know. And so we're there and I just was like, okay, this is all different. This is all foreign. Uh, you know? And so it was a couple nights of just trying to get acclimated and I wasn't sleeping so good because all the sounds are new and, and things, I mean, just all the sounds are weird. And so I'm sitting there just trying to adapt to this. And I remember just one night I'm sitting there next to the window and I'm just standing up. Amanda's in bed and I just keep standing up and I just keep looking out the window and I just keep watching and something just doesn't feel right. Something just feels off. And so I just keep staring out this window and I'm just watching, nothing's happening. And Amanda's like, what are you doing? Just come back to bed. Nothing's happening. And so then I'm standing there and I just keep watching out this window. Again, something just doesn't feel right. I can't explain it. And so I'm just watching. And all of a sudden, next thing I know, I see this little shadowy figure and I just see it coming up against the house, and then there's hedges, and again, the window's opened out, so I just see this figure roll under the window that opens out, and his head pops up right on the other side, and so now we are face-to-face, our eyes are locked in at each other, he's right on the other side of the bars and 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 the mesh, and so I'm looking right at him, and the only thing I could muster up in that time was, who are you? Literally, I asked him his name. I don't know why. But I literally just like, who are you? The crazier thing than me asking him who he was, was the fact that he answered me. He goes, Willie. And he took off running. And so Willie takes off running. I'm like, I got to get Willie. So I'm like taking off too. So I'm like running out the house. I'm coming out there. And this is our evening. And so that was like our experience. But it was this idea of this heightened awareness. Something was happening in our home that was disruptful and disconcerting to me. And I had this moment where I was aware that something just wasn't right. Adam should have had that feeling. Adam should have had that feeling that something wasn't right in his home. Adam did not need to sit there and passively watch the enemy attack his bride. Husbands, men, we cannot sit in our homes and allow the enemy to attack our families. We cannot sit idle. We cannot be passive. We cannot be dictators either. We must be servant leaders like a shepherd, shepherding our home. And one of those things is to look out for danger. And listen, in this moment, the enemy had the loudest voice in that home and Adam was perfectly okay with it. And that is wrong. The enemy mustn't have the loudest voice in our homes. The father must have the loudest voice in our homes. And we must live accordingly with faith and trust him. And we must do all we can to protect our home from the schemes of the evil one. Ephesians 6. I love this passage. So flip over there with me. We'll be in verse 10. But Ephesians 6, it comes right after in Ephesians 5 where God is talking uh, about the idea of a godly family. 
And so Paul outlines what a godly family looks like, and he talks about being a godly husband and how to love your wife and what it means to be a godly wife and how to uh, submit and respect your husbands, what it means to be godly parents, what it means to be godly children, what it means to be godly laborers. And so we have our family unit, and we have what it looks like to be a godly family. And then immediately after this, We flip over to the scriptures, and this is where put on the full armor of God is located. And I don't believe it's a coincidence because the first attack came against the family, Adam and Eve, and every subsequent attack will come against the family. And that's coming against you individually. That's coming against you as a family. The enemy wants to disrupt the home however he can get there. And so this is what Paul says. In 6.10, finally be strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Verse 14, stand therefore on the truth. That is the word of God. Stand on the truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace in every situation. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and put and pray at all times in the spirit. So what we have right here is this is how we defend ourselves. This is how we resist ourselves. We put on the full armor of God and we take up to prayer in the spirit. We take up to reading his word, to having faith that his word is trustworthy and then using it. What did Jesus do in the wilderness to disarm the attacks of the enemy? He used the word of God appropriately. He used the truth appropriately to resist the enemy. And that is what we we're meant to do in our homes. God's word must be prevalent in our hearts. It must be prevalent. The scriptures in Peter talk about growing in grace and knowledge. We're meant to grow in grace and knowledge. Those two things are beautiful when put together. It says, don't just grow in knowledge because that's academic and don't just grow in grace because that can become emotional. But if you put these two together, you got experiential and you got academic and it says to grow in the experience and to grow in knowing intimately who God is and to walk in his ways so that you can push off the enemy and bring glory to God. That is what the home should look like. And when we come home at the end of the day, you see, we typically do a good job of putting on the armor when we go to work, when we're around other people, but then when we get home, we take it off. And we're like, ah, I made it. No, we got to keep the armor on at home because that's what the enemy is going to attack mostly. You got to keep that armor on at home at all times because the enemy wants to do nothing more than to destroy that home because if he can destroy the home, he can destroy every other area of your life and ministry and where you hope to bring glory to God. And the enemy knows that. So he says, this is how you stand against. This is how you do this. We are meant to live according to the ways of God. We are meant to walk in peace and harmony. And listen, we know that in this world, It's broken and it's fractured, but we have hope in this world. And we know that we're going to fail 
at times, but for those who believe in Jesus Christ, you know that his blood is powerful enough to bring about complete forgiveness. And the greatest transformation that takes place when you believe in Jesus is the fact that God now looks at you as not guilty, even when you continue to fail. He still looks at you because the blood is that powerful. The blood of Jesus and the work of the cross is that powerful. So we have this hope. What happens after Adam and Eve fail? They tried to make their own covering. They tried to to earn. They tried to go back to this merit-based system. But what did God do? He killed the animal. He covered them. His atoning work is enough. He will uphold us with his righteous right hand and help us continue on and fight for his glory every single day. There is victory in Jesus. And so I just want to conclude with our advocate. While we have an adversary, we have an advocate who is much greater and who is much more for us. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 30, it says, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, that is Christ Jesus our Lord. That he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, that is who holds us up, that who is who helps us, and that's who we must turn to in our homes each and every single day and surrender our lives to and follow. We got to know how the enemy attacks, but we got to know that our Lord will get us through it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, Lord, and I just thank you so much for the way that you continue to passionately pursue us. And Father, I just pray that you will help us to hear these words And Father, to not just hear them, but that we would act upon them, that we would practice the things that we have heard and learned from you. And Lord, that we would be much more aware in our homes for every relationship, for all the loved ones around us, that we would care enough that we would see your attacks. We would see the fiery darts. We would see that whenever you have elicited these attacks of of anger or impatience or frustration or bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness, whether unfaithfulness or whether or not there are these hostilities and abuses, whatever these things are, that we would be aware of them in our homes and that we would surrender in faith to you. Father, strengthen our homes, strengthen our hearts, and may we be the godly people you so desperately desire to be, and may we get all of our strength from you. Father, fill us up with faith and help us walk according to you and to your word and to your ways. May we delight in you and may we delight in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.